Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us again. I'm Yubi. I'm here with Mike and Nina, as always. How are you guys doing? Doing okay. Hello, everyone. Doing okay, yeah. Good morning. Welcome back. Awesome. And we are here today with uh, someone I met last year at Aspen Food & Wine. He's a former contestant on Bravo TV's Top Chef season 14. And he's chef de cuisine at Knife and Spoon at the Ritz Carlton in Orlando, Grand Lakes. I wanna make sure I got all that. Um, so Chef Gerald Sombright, thank you so much for being here. And just to kind of kick it off, like how are you doing right now? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Um, quarantine day, um, 245, I guess it is now. <laughs> right. Um, but I'm doing great. Um, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty beautiful day here in Florida. Um, as as always, just a little hot and humid. But I'm doing really well this this afternoon. How you doing? Good. You know, we're 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 good. It's um, there's a lot going on, and um, you know, we're just uh, you know, the July Fourth weekend is coming up. So I think. Um, I think that'll be good for for a lot of people to sort of take a minute, you know, kind of regroup, hang out with family, and and you know, so yeah, I think doing good. Mike, Nina, you guys, how are you doing? Well, I don't want to dive into the historical implications of July Fourth, but <laughs> especially like the implications of what that means to this country and the Black community. But yeah, uh, it is a day off, so I'll take it. Yeah, and I Fair actually, point. uh, my, uh, my youngest son's birthday is, uh, noon straight up on the 4th of July. So we've, uh, you know, we tell him that every year, and even though he's going to be 12 and he knows it's not true, but we tell him the fireworks are all for him. So it's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to it, but at the end of the day, like I, I so looking forward to conversations like with you, Gerald, um, it's uh, I learn a ton, and I'm uh, I'm eager to uh, to hear your perspective, my friend. Perfect. I'm eager to share my perspective uh, today because you your your perspective is quite interesting to me. Um, obviously, uh, you 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 experience diversity in a, at a level that that most people can't comprehend um, just because of the senses, and the fact that all three of you are together in a group is. Uh, I would assume that you all have learned a lot from each other, which is amazing. So Gerald, I wanna jump into the, the first question right away because um, up until a few minutes ago, uh, I did not know you were, uh, is it Top Chef contestant? Is that correct? Yes, yes ma'am. Yeah, and so you had a really interesting experience being on a competition the day you were eliminated. And uh, it became a national news story. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us, start off by just telling us about that experience, what happened that day, and uh, how that kind of changed you and changed the world. Um, I uh, it was uh, any other day, a day like any other, um, when you're walking around uh, for two months sequestered and being with the production studio um, 24 hours a day, so. Um, that is definitely not my normal life, but that was my life 
uh, in that moment in the two months that we filmed uh, that television show, uh, which is a reality-based show, but more importantly, it's a staple in the um, in the culinary community. Um, there's a lot of shows out there, and there's a lot of of people doing cooking competitions and um, Top Chef in particular was the only one I ever really wanted to do because of how it really values the industry and how it um, tells all of these interesting stories about places and people and um, kind of dive into their life. And then the challenge uh, as a chef is um, amazing. Uh, even though it's painstaking, you would never put yourself through those situations. Um, it is quite awesome to see what you produce under um, uh, under fire, I should say. But on my particular season, I lost the the, the first uh, challenge. When we started the season, um, we did a rookies versus veterans. So it was um, eight people who had never done the show and then eight people who were returning. And they had never done that format before. And they also didn't let us know that before we um, walked into the studio the first day. So I go up against these eight people and I, and I am like uh, trying to drink water through a fire hose. They just throw you into this like cooking experience and it's cameras and it's hot and you like run around and I like freaked out and panicked. And I um, just kind of wet the bed on this first challenge. And that put me in the bottom and they, the, the, typically on Top Chef, the very first challenge leads you to an elimination challenge. So there's a quick fire challenge that gives you like 30 minutes to come up with something. And then the elimination challenge is typically like two days or you have like a few hours to cook and prep and then you go somewhere else and then you maybe present your dish. Um, typically that's how elimination work. Well, they wanted to start this season off with a bang. So they did a quick fire challenge right into a sudden death elimination. Um, so I was in the sudden death elimination against the veteran, uh, John Tezar, who, what lost um, his quick fire challenge as well. So we, um, Charleston as a place has this uh, really expansive history of, of um, not necessarily shying away from the things that have happened, but really culturally um, kind of putting those things forefront of the city. Whereas there are, you, you can see the steps where slaves were sold. They, it's, it's very funny to me because I'm from um, St. Louis and St. Louis is very segregated, but I spent time in Charleston and, and I guess economically all cities are kind of segregated, but I, I found it very interesting how that city doesn't hide this part of its history. It's a real part of the town, which is, which is quite interesting. So consequently, one of the most famous places in the town is a plantation and um, the sudden death quick fire was on a plantation. And when we got to the plantation, we drove around for about three hours. And um, as television is, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And then we finally started filming. But for the three hours that we drove around, myself, John, and our production assistant, who was an African-American woman, we drove around this plantation and saw these sights and heard these sounds and watched people reenact certain time periods. And um, it just sparked this really interesting conversation, this very deep conversation between the three of us in the car. So then when I got to um, the moment that I was standing on the, the platform and Padma asked, how do I feel in this moment? All of these things that I just had discussed came out of me from, from my spirit. It just said, 
um, I know the blood of my ancestors is running through my veins and I feel very um, spiritually connected to where I am in this moment doing this thing on national television. And uh, it, it caused the rest of the contestants to kind of gasp. And um, it, it was just a true depiction of what I felt in the moment. And I, I thought it also very interesting that Top Chef kept that in, even though they could have edited that out of the episode, which was uh, quite amazing. And then John said how he felt and then we did this challenge and then I lost. Um, John, we, we always fight about the fact that he brought in a truffle, which is quote unquote an illegal ingredient. Um, and then the notion of me losing on the plantation against this guy who brought this luxurious item was just enough to make Twitter um, explode. And all of these people got very offended by this moment that I stood in that I felt, um, strangely enough, very proud of. Um, because it, it, the way that I cooked, the way that I, the, the dish that I made, everything that I did, even though I lost, I was extremely proud of that moment to be able to, to do something like that on national television and be able to, um, be able to produce something that I was extremely proud of, win or lose. So um, it was just shocking that I downloaded Twitter to kind of help, um, to kind of help them, to kind of help combat the, the, all of the angst and racism that kind of went back and forth. But it was um, one of those moments that strangely, I wasn't as deeply offended as other people were, which is kind of, kind of odd. Well, I, I think that's a really important part of the, the conversation that's happening now. I think there's it just there's so many assumptions and there's so many people, particularly white people, who sort of layer try to layer in their own experience on top of the black community's experience. And without taking a moment to kind of like really understand, like what are you truly feeling? And so I appreciate that you brought that up because that's a, a, just a clear distinction in this conversation. Like we need to be more curious about each other instead of just assuming. Um, what's your, you, you have some history with, um, with what's been going on, right? And, and from Ferguson and, and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about your, your history as it relates to like police brutality and, um, and you know, coming from St. Louis, yeah, um, I, it's such a was such a odd, um, such a strange thing for me to speak on because, as far as as long as I can remember, literally, um, some of my first memories are the notion that my uncle um, Huey, who I literally have like two memories of because I was like four or five years old when he was murdered. He was um, at this bar in St. Louis um, and, and he apparently got into an altercation with a couple of guys and um, both of those guys were police officers but they were off duty at this bar having a drink the same as he and um, they went outside and, and the, the officers killed my uncle. Um, one of them shot and killed my uncle and I remember um, throughout my history, kind of as my family would, there, there are times when we would talk, my family would talk about this experience and my grandmother would talk about how um, the city of St. Louis awarded her some money, but the guys never went to, to 
they never went to prison for anything for, for his murder. And there was never really any justice, but there was this monetary um, settlement, I guess you want to call it, that was given to her, which definitely doesn't bring her son back. But for me as a human being, being African-American growing up, it really, um, it really started my perception on what law enforcement was and what the experience with the African-American community and um, police and, and, and police brutality to be specific, what that felt like and what that, what, how real it was um, to, to a young human being kind of growing up. I knew um, immediately that I was black and that there was going to be a different way that I was treated than um, the way that other people was treated. Then throughout my life, I've experienced a, a fair amount of um, stop and frisk. I've, I've been in front of my children where the cops have pulled my clothes up and, and, and patted me down for literally no reason, but standing outside talking to um, friends that I grew up with, um, even as an adult, uh, sitting on my grandmother's front porch. So the, the relationship with the community and the, the, the police, I've always, found it to be one that wasn't very um, inviting on both sides of the coin. Um, but I've also, I also lived in a time period um, before, and then when I was young, maybe 10, 11 or 12, I remember what it was like for cops to know everybody on the street as well. So I also lived this very interesting time where I knew police officers from um, a walk the beat kind of experience really back in the day to when it kind of changed to all these different people being into these communities that they don't really understand or respect or, or know the people um, and just really policing from a, um, from a very, um, very skewed viewpoint of, of who these people are and what their community is like. So um, I, I went through that experience and then I started to experience all these things myself. Um, I, I purchased my first house in Ferguson, which was, um, ironically enough, at the time that I purchased my house in the early 2000s, it was a step up from the places that, like North City is where my grandmother lived, and I lived in North County, but I lived in, in other areas, and Ferguson was literally a step up, and it was, it was very interesting to see over time what transpired till we get to um, the, the moment where we run into Mike Brown and um, him being slain by a police officer, which is in a lot of ways, I think kind of spurred the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it was, it was, it was getting, the moment was fed up at that point. We had went through Trayvon Martin and we had went through all these other cases. And then when it hit Mike Brown, it kind of really exploded in Ferguson. And we saw riots in the country that, that didn't sustain, but it was very, um, it was very, energized and, and also very uh, complex and polarizing in the sense that there was a lot of national people who came to this area and, and caused it to be um, through a lot more fuel into the fire than it, than it needed to be and kind of caused it to, to, to escalate in some ways very positive and in some ways um, kind of negative. And um, I personally know Oh, I think you went on mute for a second. <laughs> Can you hear me? 
Uh, you're very faint right now. Can you hear me? Yubi, can you hear him? Barely. Hello? Can you hear us, Chef? You're barely coming in. I'm sorry, there was a call. There you go. Oh, okay. oh gosh, no worries. <laughs> That's why um, I love live. <laughs> okay, sorry. Somebody was calling in my microphone. I was like, man, it feels very quiet here. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I know Mike Brown and I, and I lived in Ferguson and I went to high school. I mean, I graduated from the same high school that, that you see Mike Brown um, Jr. on his um, high school photo. So I feel a way about that that's, that's I feel very connected to the moments. And I guess now with, um, with George Floyd, I, I feel like the moments are, are bigger than a moment and they are, have turned into a movement. And I feel like it's a movement that's really um, one of those things, one of the few times in my life where I feel as if it will be a sustained effort until there is real change. And, and that particular thing um, excites me in a way that most of these things that I'm talking about have kind of knocked me back or, or, or knocked me down. But this particular moment, um, very unfortunate that someone lost their life and that we had to all witness it in a very barbaric and, and um, disgusting way. It, it was um, a huge tragedy, but seeing from that what can grow and, and how people on both sides of the coin can, um, on both sides of the street, I should say, can definitely engage with each other and be allies in a, in a moment that um, that moves us really forward. And, and I'm, I'm excited about the, the movement um, more than, than any other time. But there is definitely a way that it connects me as a human being um, than other people because I've literally seen it play out throughout my um, whole life. And I've seen the, the I, I felt it to be normal. Um, and George Floyd's experience and, and us watching it as a nation even as a world these days, because I've seen posts from Australia about George Floyd and it, it blows my mind that the world is watching and it, um, it what was normal to me is it, striking that that is not normal. People shouldn't live like that. I shouldn't have those, those feelings. And um, I think that we all are kind of fed up with people having those feelings and, and really trying to move the needle forward so that the next generation of people um, feel what it's like to really have equality. Why do you think wow. it's different now? Oh, sorry, Mike. Yeah, that's no, Ubaldo. That's I was actually going to. I was going to ask the exact same question. Um, thank you for sharing so much of your history and um, just wow is all I can say. Um, but what's what what is yeah to Ubaldo like I was gonna ask what why do you feel like now is different why do you think it's gonna go from a a moment a moment to a movement? Uh, I, 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 a lot of um, in a lot of ways I think that the I think that it's um, I think that people are fed up for one and and I also think the most the more interesting thing that I that I actually feel from this particular time period is that there are more allies. It used to feel as if this was um, a problem that only existed to this one community. So this one community felt this particular problem and 
a lot of times, if you're not in that community, you can dismiss it. You can say that that's not the real facts. You just feel like that because you haven't worked hard or you, I know people who were poor and they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, but this is something um, very different. And I think that um, I, I watched Ava DuVernay say, why, um, why, asked the question to herself, why did this particular video break her down so much? And she gave this very um, interesting perspective as a director that I would never take as just a person watching the video. She said, what is what changed in the George Floyd video is that you had both people in the frame, both looking at the camera, which is quite interesting from her perspective because she she directs movies. And she said that both of them being in the frame, looking at the camera did something different to, to all of us because um, we, we've never really seen it in that uh, way. And I think that, that seeing that video for not just African-Americans, but for people all over the world, it really changed uh, what the allies looked and felt like. People really got it for the first time in watching that video. And I think that that's the thing that's different, that it's not just Black people standing up for Black Lives Matter. There's white and Asian and, and, and Russian. It's crazy. It's a global phenomenon about what it's like to, to be in places all over the world and, and experience systematic racism. But um, the systematic racism that happens in America a lot of times it's quite extreme in the, in the notion that people lose their lives. And I think that people are just fed up with it and not just black people. And I think that that's the difference. It's not just black people are fed up with it. Um, we all kind of got fed up with it at the same time. Sure, what have been the Thank impacts you. that you've seen in terms of how the movement is impacting the food and, and restaurant industry or whatever is what's happening right now in the world? How's it impacting food and restaurants? Um, very great question. I just read an article in the New York Times today about um, Southern Food Alliance, which is a, um, a, a alliance of, of people who cook here in the South. And um, they were talking about how the leader of the Southern Food Alliance needs to step down because it's been this white male for the last 20 years. Um, and uh, basically kind of saying that his agenda is not necessarily um, as diverse as it should be. And is also kind of like the time to run, run away from the boys club or the elitist and kind of give voice to other people because this particular um, alliance really kind of sets the standard, I guess, or, or really helps push the envelope of who gets notoriety in the South. So you see, like, because they're writers and the, the influence that this group has, it can really take a person's career from being um, unknown to, to huge amounts of notoriety. And, and, and they were kind of basically saying this guy needs to step down so that other people can see other stories and really get people to have notoriety. So that's one thing. And then there's Bon Appetit magazine, who, if you didn't notice, they just let go of their, um, um, the guy who was the, the senior editor um, had a uh, brown face uh, post that he had on Instagram where he dressed up in brown face to look like uh, Alex Rodriguez and, and J-Lo. And it went pretty viral. And then on top of that, the people in the workplace said that 
I'm a, a Indian woman and I don't get paid as much as this people and I'm asked to jump in these photos just because I'm a minority. It was very, it was very, very, uh, very big story in it. And it, he um, stepped down from his position. So you see this, uh, I, I don't want to say awakening, but you see definitely an opening and the opening is starting to hit those areas that have been kind of avoided for uh, quite some time. A lot of people feel like African-American chefs have built a cuisine and then there are Caucasian chefs who take um, take credit for it in a certain sense because they're cooking really this indigenous Southern kind of African um, diaspora that, that slaves went through and then started to, to develop. And now you're seeing this moment of the industry pausing and rethinking what's important and, and rethinking how um, how the lack of diversity has been the norm for, for far too long. And what do we now do since we thought we included people, but we didn't really include people and we definitely didn't tell their stories and we definitely didn't make them as famous as the, as food famous, I should say, as some of their white contemporaries. So uh, I see that real big shift of, um, of people really starting to ask African-American chefs to be a part and do and say and be and, and seen and write and, and involve themselves in all of these things that in a certain sense have been kind of um, um, very difficult to get into certain circles, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. That's really encouraging uh, to hear that because, well, like, because did you, like growing up, you know, you talked about your history, you talked about that feeling and that just that, that status quo that I think most people in the Black community have had their entire lives. But so did you ever, like, how did you get into the food world? How did you become a chef? Was that always something on your mind? Um, absolutely not, you be. Um, I'd had no clue what I wanted to do. I didn't, didn't, um, I knew I needed to work and I knew I didn't, um, I, I knew I needed to help my mom pay bills and I didn't really want to, um, go to college at the time. And, and I was like in between all these odd jobs, I worked for this temp service and I was really exhausted and I was just like praying, 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 please don't let me live my life in the rat race. I, I remember praying a prayer like that. And um, consequently, I had always worked around food service. So when I was around, I worked in fast food and I worked in all these places. So when I got around 18, um, I went to go work for the first kitchen um, right across the street from Bush Stadium at the Western St. Louis. And it was the first time I had ever worked where there was not a kitchen manager, there was a chef. And I remember um, very vividly watching the chef break down fish and, and cut tuna into these like specific blocks and, and weigh it out. And I was like, wow, this is something that really intrigues me and I want to be a part of. And then I remember the, um, the chef having a, a photo of uh, Escoffier on the wall <laughs> next to the clipboard where our uh, schedule was held. So we all had to walk past this photo every day. And I thought it was his grandfather for the longest time because I, I'd never known a person to have like a photo of somebody on the wall that wasn't someone that was related to them. 
Well, Escoffier is, I didn't know who it was. And I asked the chef, who's that photo? And he was like, please um, get away from me. But before the end of the day, you must tell me who that is. And I was like, oh my God, I was all nervous. And so I went around asking all the cooks and, and somebody was kind enough to explain to me that that was Escoffier, August Escoffier. He is the, the father of French cuisine in a certain sense, because he was the first person to ever write down what it meant to be, uh, what French cuisine was and what it meant to be a part of a, a brigade system. And he was the first person that also created a la carte dining, um, which had not happened before um, he came on the scene. And I, I found it very, um, very strange. And I found it also very, very interesting that this is the photo that this man wants to have on the wall. So there must be something to this cooking thing. And um, consequently, I, I fell in love with it because I, I went to work every single day and I learned something new. And that had never happened to me up until that point. And I, I'm in, a, in a large sense of the word, I'm still doing that, which is, which is amazing. I am, like, I, <laughs> I have learned so much. I learned so much on these calls. And, and you're <laughs> this walking encyclopedia of... Uh, it, not only, you know, food, food and, and being on television and, and your history, I, I just so I, I can't thank you enough for sharing some time with us. I'm uh, I really am blown away. What a, what a true pleasure it is to to hear you talk um, uh, about your 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 story and in a way that is quite honestly like I don't I don't hear anger or contempt or anything. All I hear is uh this uh, uh, hopeful um you know like I, I i that's what i'm hearing from you is it is my ear catching it is it is it is it for <laughs> real cuz that's that's all i'm hearing from you gerald well i mean i i i'm i have a huge reason to be i have a big reason to have a lot of disdain and anger and 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 resentment and all of those things but i i, I do feel like there is a part of us as a, as human beings that the, the, the more we hold on to the, the more weight we have that keeps us from being able to, to rise. And um, I, I definitely want to continue to move forward in my life with understanding what the past was and um, knowing what my part is in that to give that information to the next generation of people, my kids, my, my colleagues, the, 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 young men and women who work for me now. Um, sometimes we, we talk about all of our histories and diversity, um, but I, I think that I, I don't feel like anger or, or resentment or, or anything less than hope is a, is a proper way to live your life. And I also don't feel like it's gonna get us to any place that we want to be. There is, a, I, I do understand the anger, um, don't get me wrong. I understand why people feel certain ways and, and how they react because of the way that they feel. But some sense of, of what I've experienced um, was normal. And that's what's the more eye-opening thing. Wow, I just normally accepted being ostracized because I walked down the street. Like, that's not a that's not a thing. I don't even know. I, th these days, I guess I would keep my mouth shut and kind of still go along with that experience. But I, I don't know if that's something that I would take. It, this, I think I understand it differently. 
as far as I need to be around for my kids to not get into an argument and get shot by a police officer because I'm not obeying. But I also know what it's like to be an adult and say, this is my experience. And these people who did this to me, we're going to fight against them until uh, there's something done about it. And I, I think that that's the more hopeful way or I think it's the better advantage of living living your life. Um, and it, and it, it, the truth is, it was normal. It, it is normal. So it doesn't feel like something you're angry about because you've accepted it as long as you could remember. Um, it's just hopeful that other people have accepted it and see it now for what it is. And um, we all are fighting day by day to, to make a, a change. I can't think of a better way to end uh, this episode, man. That was amazing. Yeah, Gerald, yeah. thank you so, so much. Um, yeah. Blown away. So thank, thank you. you. Thank, yeah. Always, always. We'll have to do this again. Um, yes. Hopefully on a mountain. Amazing. Hopefully we're on a yes, mountain. Yeah. Drinking, yes. drinking <laughs> champagne. Uh, <laughs> let's, yeah, let's yeah, stick around after we go live. After we stop going live, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, well, thank you all very much for listening in. Again, chooseinclusion.com. Uh, we're going to keep having these amazing conversations, learning and building hope. I love leaving off of that because, Mike, I feel the same way. So, thank you, Gerald. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, everybody. Um, we'll catch you next time. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thank Gerald. you. Goodbye.